Hello, welcome to 1823 Podcast. This is where we discuss a whole range of issues with guests from or connected to Liverpool John Moores University. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith, this is episode 5, and we're discussing the need for a new deal for nature. Right now, we're facing a man-made disaster of global scale. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. The United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. We would want people to change their behavior because they truly believe this is the right thing to do. But we also need to understand that sometimes we have to use a a different language, a different set of narrative, of arguments. You can't just talk about environmental sustainability. You have to behave in an appropriate way. You know, as with many fields, individuals can achieve a lot, but you achieve much more when you work in partnership. This is something that is very important because obviously with climate change and everything at the minute that's happening, this is something that can really make them learn about why these conditions are changing constantly. This is 1823 Podcast. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. That was Sir David Attenborough addressing the UN Conference on Climate Change in Poland in December 2018. He's one of the most high-profile figures demanding changes in human behaviour to save and protect our natural environment. But how do we persuade individuals, organisations, entire countries to act differently? And have we left it too late to make meaningful change? In this episode, we'll look at the global frameworks attempting to protect our planet, how organisations are working together on a regional basis, and we visit an initiative which educates the next generation by teaching school children about nature. First, let's discuss the big picture. What are the immediate challenges we face and how are we attempting to tackle them? My first guest is Dr Céline germont Jure, a senior lecturer in human geography at LJMU. Hi Céline. Hello. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We're recording this in a week in which there have been various alarming reports about the environment, that two-thirds of giant ice fields in the Himalayas could disappear this century, that the colour of the oceans is changing because of climate change, and that growing fruit and vegetables in the UK is becoming increasingly difficult, all in the last three or four days. How concerned are you right now about the impact that our behaviour is having on the planet? Well, I am worried, of course, I'm very worried um, to see the extent of um, harmful impact that human activities have on the environment. Um, And I think that whether we are concerned by the actual environmental impact um, or whether we're concerned by the economic consequences or the political consequences or just because of the unethical element behind, I think we should all be uh, very concerned. But what is re- worrying, I think, beyond that is that we could have had this discussion 10 years ago or 20 years ago. What I mean by that is that we have a good awareness of environmental issues, and it's not new, it's not recent. If we look at the history of environmentalism, modern environmentalism has started in the 60s. So we have decades of knowledge and evidence of the negative uh, environmental impact uh, that human activities have. And it seems that um, 
there's a kind of a lack of progress in ascent, despite mm. all this awareness. And what is very worrying is a change of scale. If we reflect on the environmental issues, how they have evolved for the past 30 or 40 years, at first they were very local, and now they're much more global. Mm. So there's been a change in scale, and there's been an increase in environmental issues, and they're also very uh, multi-sectoral in their impact. And a good example of that is climate change, which is a global issue with a multi-sectoral impact. We heard at the top of the episode a clip of President Trump announcing the US withdrawal from the Paris Accord. How crucial is it that we've previously had that consensus across the globe about the need to tackle climate change? And does that American decision suggest that we're moving away from having a consensus? I would say that there is still a global consensus uh, to say that we need to address environmental issues and including climate change. Um, an example outside uh, uh, climate change is the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals, mm. which is a set of uh, 17 targets, sustainable targets, that countries have to reach by 2030. And this set of goals were adopted uh, in 2015. And, um, and that shows a consensus at the global level for the need to tackle uh, environmental issues. Um, so, I, so I don't think there's a lack of consensus on that. I think there's a lack of consensus on how to do it, how mm. to implement measures that would uh, mitigate climate change or prevent other environmental issues. Um, when it comes to uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, what is very interesting with the Paris Agreement is that after... Um, all these years of very difficult negotiations, we finally reached an agreement. We finally uh, reached a consensus. And, um, and at that time when the Paris Agreement was adopted, it, it was considered as a very ambitious, uh, historical decision, uh, a success. And in a sense, I think we can say it was a success from a diplomatic point of view. It was a diplomatic success. At the same time, is it efficient? Will, will it be efficient to mitigate climate change and to meet its objective, which is to, um, to limit the increase of the global temperatures to no more than two degrees Celsius? I don't think so. And there have been several studies, scientific studies, showing that um, the targets are not sufficient. Um, the targets included in the first agreement, uh, the objectives uh, by individual countries to reduce the emissions are not sufficient anyway. So when it comes to the U.S. withdrawal, um, of course, it is, it is bad news if it means that the U.S. Uh, are not going to take further measures to, uh, to, to reduce the greenhouse emissions. It is bad news, of course. But as I said, I don't think the Paris Agreement would be that efficient anyway. More importantly, I think it's, uh, it really sends the U.S. withdrawal sends a, a very worrying message uh, because... When the Paris Agreement was adopted, um, it, was, it was sending the message to climate deniers, we believe in climate change mm. and we are going to act against climate change. With the US withdrawal, it is a, the reverse happening. It sends a wrong message to people that perhaps it's not such an important issue if such a big country as the US decide not to, to be part of it. It just sends a wrong message uh, to people. And we know that there are a lot of climate deniers out there. So this is not the right message to send. Mm. President Trump's speech also touches on an interesting issue that I know that you've considered in great detail, the, the question of incentivizing behavior change. 
in his case, he doesn't think the Paris Accord is financially beneficial to the United mm -hmm. States, so they pull out. How big a driver of behaviour change is the value that we place on environmental assets? I think this is a very important question, and it brings us to, um, to, to the question, why do we value nature? Why should we value nature? And we can't um, identify three big sets of values, if you wish. Uh, first is what we call the instrumental or the utilitarian value, which is the idea that we need to protect nature because nature is a resource. We use nature as a resource. So that's really a utilitarian view. We use nature. Um, then there's also the idea that we need to value nature because of how it makes us feel. And finally, there is the idea that we need to protect nature just because it's, it is the right things to do, the moral thing to do. So we have these three different set of values. And uh, if I go back to the first one, the instrumental values, the utilitarian value, um, there is this idea now, the argument that um, we need to, to, pre to, to preserve nature, to conserve nature because of the economic benefits it represents. Um, so the idea of putting a monetary value on nature, putting a price on nature. And an interesting example is oceans. Uh, we're talking a lot about oceans. Uh, it has been the case for the past few years. So, th so there is a lot of awareness for the need to protect oceans. And recently, the WWF produced a report uh, called Reviving the Ocean Economy, and in which they said that each year, um, oceans provide us with a wealth of goods and services valued to 2.5 trillion uh, US dollars. So they put this monetary value on oceans. Mm. Is it the right strategy, the right things to do? Some people would say, well, it's not the right approach because uh, they're quite concerned by the neoliberalization of nature and the involvement of private actors. Um, should we think in terms of profit when we think about um, nature protection? At the same time, given the urgency of the environmental crisis, if that, if that means that people or private actors or public actors are more willing to act to protect nature, in a sense, we can say that perhaps the end is more important than the means. Uh, um, so, of course, ideally, we, we would want people to change their behavior because they truly believe this is the right thing to do. But we also need to understand that sometimes we have to use a a different language, a different set of narrative of arguments. If you really want people to relate to, um, to the environment and to the need to protect the environment, and perhaps framing the question in terms of personal benefits, uh, economic benefits, economic saving, perhaps that could lead to positive behavioral change. Yes, and the ends justify the means. You, you talk about personal benefits, but what about personal cost? What, what do you think the tipping point is where people would demand greater and faster change? Do you think we have to personally experience the negative consequences of climate change in order to demand something done differently? I think that for many people, there is indeed a kind of psychological distance when it comes to uh, environmental issues. And the idea that oh, if, we, if we don't see it happening, it means it's, it is not happening. Uh, climate change is a very interesting topic because, uh, because of the amount of climate denial uh, out there. Uh, it is the only issue that, that suffers from so much denial. Uh, you would not um, 
see someone saying or uh, asking, do you believe in uh, species extinctions? Do you believe in pollution? But people would ask, do you believe in climate change? As if it was a question of beliefs, of mm. personal beliefs, while we know there is scientific evidence. So um, I would say that not exper experimenting, uh, experiencing environmental disasters can uh, can play a role indeed. And there have been studies showing that um, climate denials or climate beliefs, if I can say, relate um, the occurrence of natural hazards. For example, in the US uh, with the Hurricane Katrina or with Hurricane uh, uh, Sandy, uh, that leads people to believe a bit more in climate change. So in a sense, yes, I would say that uh, people's perception of climate change is linked to their personal experience. Recently, there have been this uh, called uh, fronts in the US, and that led to some people questioning global warming mm -hmm. because it's very confusing. Arguably, it is confusing for people because climate and weather is a different thing. And when we use the expression global warming, it can be very confusing because it doesn't mean that the weather is going to be more hot uh, where you live, uh, not necessarily. So this is quite confusing. And um, so the question is how to get the message across when we have so uh, difficult issues to understand, um, how, how to get the right message to the people uh, indeed, yeah. Yeah, just on that particular point, do you think that's been a mistake of language over the years to, for that phrase to have stuck global warming? Because, you know, the president himself refers yes. to it constantly as being, exactly. well, how, how can that be when we're so cold? Mm -hmm. I think you're right. And um, the expression climate change is uh, is preferable to the expression global warming. And actually, global warming is very, is very often used by climate deniers as a way to say, look, there is no such a thing as a warming here. So we have to be very careful with the language which we use indeed. Yeah. Just finally, to, to look ahead, you, you've mentioned some of the agreements that have been in place, Paris and Kyoto and so on, and there are future frameworks mm -hmm. being laid out like New Deal for Nature. Do you think these go far enough to reduce the damage that we're doing to the environment and to promote sustainability? I would say that these agreements um, are cl clearly not sufficient. Uh, they are sending the right message to people and they show that governments care and they are ready to, uh, to take action or to provide some, uh, some guidance. So I think it is, uh, it is a very positive development, but clearly not enough. Um, so the question is how to translate global agreements into local or uh, regional actions. And that's all about uh, behavioral change. And it's all about a change of norms, how to change norms, how to make sure that uh, um, that some some actions, some daily uh, daily actions that people can take, they become the normal and um, and uh, um, the, the normal behavior. If we think of things like recycling, for example, how to make sure that this becomes very natural and normal for people. Um, so it's really how to how to get the message across and how to make sure that uh, there is a, we translate these guidance or principles adopted at the global level, how do we translate that into people's uh, behavior on a daily basis? And I, I strongly believe that education um, is part of the answer. I strongly believe that education for sustainable development, education of the youngest, I really believe this is part of the answer. Integrating sustainability into, into the curriculum and uh, from the youngest age, I really think this is part uh, of the solution if we want to build a better future.
Okay, and that leads us nicely into something we'll touch on later in the episode when we we look at some of the initiatives taking place to help educate youngsters about the value of nature. Thank you, Celine. That's Celine Germont-Duré. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. 2019 has been designated as the Year of Green Action by the UK Government. The aim is to connect people with nature across the country and show how taking positive action can improve our environment. In the Liverpool City region, that takes the form of the Year of Environment. This initiative brings together a wide range of partner organisations to deliver projects which protect and enhance our environment across the city region. Liverpool John Moores University is one of those partners. I'm joined now by the university's director of the Foundation for Citizenship, Zia Chowdhury. Hi, Zia. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for coming on to the podcast today. Um, I know, like me, you were at the launch of the Year Environment. Just tell us a little bit about what it is and why LJMU is supporting it this year. Well, it's an opportunity to highlight the region's efforts to uh, improve our environment and Attending that launch, I got to see just how much was going on. It was a very exciting time, beginning of the year, a lot of good work going on and something that the university is very keen to be part and parcel of. We're blessed in the city region, aren't we, when it comes to our our natural assets, the green spaces, the beaches and, of course, the river running right through it. Do you think that helps to persuade people of the need to look after our environment because it's right there on our doorstep? I think so. I mean, growing up, I grew up in Liverpool in the 80s. And looking back on it now, I just regard that as something of a grey period and everything seemed grim in terms of opportunities. And I think at such a period, you you overlook or you take for granted the natural assets of the region. Now things have changed. There's a lot more optimism about the region. And, you know, you go into... The, the city centre on a weekend and you see people from so many different nationalities and the tourist industry has really taken off. And that's opened up many people's eyes to what we've actually got here. And when they sort of carry out that task, they remind themselves and they see that, you know, we have got the river, we have got beaches, you know, minutes away. We have got a lot of green space for a city. And it, it's a shame, perhaps, that that was overlooked for so long, but now people are finally waking up to that. And having recognised it, then, of course, comes with that a responsibility to ensure that these spaces are kept for future generations. Do you sense that change of attitude as well? Do you feel that people are recognising the importance of looking after it? I think so, and it, it extends from you know people going back to the times when there were high-rises, and now society's realised that that's not good and people, you know, don't feel proud of living in such an environment. If you provide them with a proper house, then in, in, inevitably they're going to be house-proud, they're going to look after that. And I think the same extends to the wider uh, community, the wider society. And so what happens is that, you know, recently you see all sorts of initiatives around the city where older, disused parks are now being given a new lease of life and, you know, parks that seem to be in decline and were, you know, just associated with criminal behaviour and antisocial behaviour. Now they've got flowers in, they've got families going back in. Those things that, you know, they were famous for back when they were mm. first established are all coming back. You chair a sustainability group here at LJMU. How important is it to the university to be sustainable and to act as an organisation in an environmentally responsible way? Well, we're an, you know, an anchor institution in the area. We regard ourselves as being a civic, a modern civic university which is committed to the wider society. And part of that has to be manifested by 
the responsibility you show towards wider society. So you can't just talk about environmental sustainability. You have to behave in an appropriate way. And so here at Liverpool John Moores University, for example, all of our electricity is from renewable sources. None of our waste goes to landfill. And that sort of gives an indication of how seriously we regard our commitment to the environment. Mm. I wonder if we can harness the wind energy that people are perhaps picking up in the background as well on a, a windy day in Liverpool. Um, how important is it that organisations don't go it alone and that we do come together and that, that we work as partners to, to tackle these bigger issues? You know, as with you know many fields, individuals can achieve a lot, but you achieve much more when you work in partnership. Um, and we, as a university, uh, recognise that we have lots of uh, positive partnerships around the city, around the region, and for something as important and as you know global an issue as the environment, you know, to think that we can do it individually or you know institution by institution is clearly not going to have the same impact as if we address this global problem together. And that kind of replicates the conversation I was having with Celine where we talked about tackling things globally with countries working together. This is just the same, but on the, the more regionalised basis, isn't oh, it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, globally, the, the problems don't affect different countries. You know, in, as individual countries, they're going to affect the, the whole planet. And so countries have to work together. In this region, there's no environmental aspect that's just going to affect one institution. It's going to affect us all as a wider community. And so clearly, the, you know, the advantages to working together far outweigh any disadvantages. And that principle of, of working with partner organisations and being connected to the community, that's very much at the heart of what you're doing with the Foundation for Citizenship as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, very proud to say that we have so many positive partnerships around the area, whether they are arts and cultural organisations who are working in partnership with us or partnerships about health initiatives you know we've uh, we've appreciated that we bring to the table a certain set of qualities but other organizations have other qualities that they can bring to the table and when you're addressing you know problems you can't just do it from one particular um, angle you took up that role last year what are your main priorities with the foundation you know we've already got a lot of good social engagement at this university and we've had it for well for centuries you know for the best part of 200 years mm. if you go right back to our you know founding fathers as it were they were very much committed to wider society so we're just continuing that uh, good work but of course we've got to be mindful of the you know the current situation that we're in and the reality is that in this region there are you know high levels of uh, deprivation there is as a, a as a wider society you know nationally the levels of inequality that need to be addressed and so we as a university want to you know make a contribution to bridging that gap whether it's by you know helping people get on uh, the, the ladder of education or other initiatives that will sort of you know improve the health of the, the poorest parts of the community by whether it's our research or other initiatives that we're part of. You know, that's really the kind of approach I, I want to take so that we end up in a situation where the university has done all it can to show its commitment to the community and try and reduce that gap between the advantaged and the disadvantaged. Year of Environment fits very neatly into that, doesn't it, as well? What, 
specifically on the year of environment, what are your ambitions for this year, both for the university and for the city region as a whole? I think it's a great opportunity to highlight what's, what this region is all about and to show all the, the good work that's already going on, especially as regards the environment. But specifically what we want to do, as with any initiative, is to leave um, the project in a better state than when we started it. And so if we can get to the end of the year and show that, look, this is how things were at the beginning of 2019, here we are at the end of 2019, and we've got all this activity to show that our commitment to the environment remains solid and that the prospects for the future are, you know, well-grounded. Because what we don't want, of course, is to have this um, year and then sign it off uh, come December and say, well, we've done our bit for the environment and now we can move on to another project. Okay, thanks, Zia. That's Zia Chowdhury, Director of the Foundation for Citizenship at LJMU. And you can find out more about the work of the Foundation by searching for Foundation for Citizenship at ljmu.ac.uk. 1823 Podcast. In this next section of the episode, let's talk about how awareness of environmental issues is being raised at a local level with the next generation. How are children being educated about the natural world? And how will that shape their attitudes and behaviour now and in the future? I went along to see one such initiative in action at LJMU's Forest School. This is where trainee teachers studying at LJMU plan and deliver outdoor lessons to pupils from local primary schools. More than 500 children have attended sessions over the last nine months. I sat in on a couple of sessions at the IM Marsh campus and chatted to children from two different age groups. We'll hear from them in a few moments. But first, I caught up with Rachel Harrison, one of the LJMU students who volunteers to run the sessions. I am currently studying early childhood studies. It is my first year and at the minute we are doing some leaf printing with the reception children. Um, They're all between the ages of three and four so it is quite basic what we do with them but it is trying to teach them more about um, you know the leaves falling off the trees, what colours they turn into at certain times of the year um, so yeah, it's it's pretty fun what we do here. And how often do you do a session down here? We usually do it every Friday between one and three. It's only on a voluntary basis, but um, I tr- we try to get the children to come down and get involved as much as possible. Yeah. And we mainly work around with children who struggle maybe with in certain mm. school situations to get them to come out into an environmental space and learn more practical skills as well as learning um, about environmental issues as well. So yeah. Yeah, I guess no two people ever learn the same way, do they? So some people are perhaps more suited to a more practical environment than the classroom. Oh yes, they are. The kids here absolutely love coming down here on a Friday. They love getting out of the classroom setting and learning something different, something new, especially getting out of maybe their school environment, Mm -hmm. even their playgrounds, just to come and be in a different environment themselves, yeah. And what's some of the other kind of sessions that you lay on for them? Um... It is mostly just around what we have here. So we would one week we did den building using the trees to kind of make some a shelter for them to like live in, but they weren't actually going to live in it. But it was that sort of thing, and we gave them the opportunity to explain what sort of things will help shelter them from you know the harsh winter and like conditions. Um, 
some weeks we just do a wee bit of leaf hunting so that we tell them certain different types of leaves, different colours that they turn into and they would have a sheet and they would just go around and pick each of the leaves up that they think is the most interesting and around the fire circle we get each child to talk about what their favourite leaf is, why it's their favourite, um, stuff like that. And they're obviously enjoying it and it's a way, I guess, learning without realising that you're learning as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's something for them to go home to, to even their parents or friends or um, just anyone and just say, this is what I did in for school today. Um, and then the mum or dad or or granny or granda might ask, you know, what does that mean? And then they get to explain more about why the colours change, why... Um, why the trees fall down and everything so it is pretty fun and do you think this is a way of kind of harnessing that enthusiasm that children have for outdoor activity don't they as well and for science as well it's there at an early age oh definitely because we don't really use you know plastic toys you know it's something different for them we are just using the natural environment we the most we give them is like like of today paint and crayons more practical things rather than just a toy which which sings to you or something like that interesting that this will teach good habits for them in the future because we need to change as you know a planet the way that we look after the environments is this the way to kind of embed that from an early age hopefully that's what our mission is obviously maybe when they're three or four they more think about oh look it's it's a big space with loads of colors you know but hopefully we're trying to get them to kind of think more about why they come here and what sort of things we do and that in the hope that maybe next year the year after that we continue to do this with them so it'll continue to embed in their brain instead of just come and you know once every month and just it's just something for them to do and then they go home and maybe forget about it but it is sort of a continuous process to kind of embed it in their brain as you say yeah and it's great for them but what about for you guys as well what does it do for you in terms of you know getting ready for your teaching career to be able to put on sessions like oh this. yes it is it is a great way to kind of plan a session like this so before we come here we would we have like a group chat so we would kind of put in our own wee ideas so especially over christmas there we were trying to figure out something to do christmas themed so i put in the idea of maybe we could make clay snowmen and it's kind of, that's kind of what we were learning in one of our um lectures in uni about how frobel did the idea of clay and more practical skills rather than um, um, just coming here and just running about you know they actually learn something about the feel of the clay and whatnot and um, so we do stuff like that and it, it makes you think that when you're in teacher in practice is this such is this something that could really benefit the children as well as just learning English and maths and um, you know science is this part this could be part of science this is something that is very important because obviously with climate change and everything at the minute that's happening this is something that could really make them learn about why it, these conditions are changing constantly so do you think this this setup here at LJMU's this is the kind of thing that you think should be replicated a bit more to get more children through this oh definitely um I don't know how many four schools there are across England and I know there's a lot like across even the north the and the south even in Scotland but for me personally I in Northern Ireland I have not seen very many four schools if any at that and um, I think the most I've seen is in a nursery they have their own wee garden which they go and they plant seeds and water them but it's when I thought 
about Foursquare when I was told about this program. I was confused, that's what I thought it was about. And when I came here, I couldn't believe the amount of things you could actually do with the environment and how you could teach kids to learn in that way. So it is a brilliant skill to bring into, um, even in Northern Ireland, I, I believe, and for them to learn something new, something different from what they're used to. Yeah. The thing I've learned today is that my shoes are not appropriate for walking around a fire in a forest school I mean, as well. It's definitely a trainer environment, so it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks, Rachel. If it's okay, we'll go and perhaps go and see what some of the kids are, are doing as well and That's see brilliant. what they're up to around the Thank fire. You very Thank much. you. Thank you. Hi there. Are you okay? Hi. What's your name? Phoebe. And which school do you go to, Phoebe? Liverpool College. And just tell me a little bit about what you're doing there. Um. um well, we're doing um like knots, we're tying knots, and um practice them on the trees and doing stuff like oh, that. Great. And what other things do you do when you come along to the forest school? Um, sometimes you'll build dens and then sometimes you'll like paint leaves on a piece of paper and then we'll have marshmallows at the end. It's fun. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'll let you Thank carry you. on with your uh, ropes. <laughs> Thank you. Hello Anna. Hi. How old are you? I'm eight. Okay. And um, what are you doing over there? I can see you're over there with ropes. What are you learning? Um, we're learning how to do knots. We're learning how to tie knots. Are you enjoying it? Um, we're just starting our first one because we got a bit confused and we basically we started going around looking for places and we I found an empty space and then um, Daniel found a better space that we are using now. Okay, but you've got something now? Yeah. Good. And what other things do you do when you come along to the school? Um, we, we roast marshmallows over the fire. And we can, when we're done, we can do stuff like gardening. Do you enjoy coming outside to learn? Um, yeah. 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 And what kind of things do you learn about the, the environment? And We kind of learn how to survive in the wilderness. Good. So we learn a lot of survival hacks to do. Oh, brilliant. What, what are some of the hacks that you've learned? Um, we learn how to uh, make hot chocolate in the woods. Well, let me let you go and uh, carry on with your ropes now. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Enjoy your day. Hi there. Can I come down and say hello to you? What's your name? Gabrielle. Gabrielle. And which school do you go to? Liverpool College. Tell me about some of the things you do when you come along to the forest school. I have marshmallows. Wow. And I... Even, wow. we even do, we, they even have a fire. You have a fire as well. And we have a hunt for leaves. And what colour have you chosen to paint that one? Blue. Is that because is that you're an Everton fan? No. No, just because you like the colour? I like um, support Liverpool. A very important clarification from Gabrielle there to finish that piece. The fantastic pupils from Liverpool College, and before that we heard from LJMU student Rachel Harrison. Thanks to everyone at the Forest School for having me along, unsuitable footwear and all. We'll end this episode in a moment as we started with the thoughts of Sir David Attenborough. Before that, though, we'd like to thank everyone who's taken the time to get in touch with us and given us such great feedback on the first four episodes of 1823 Podcast. Thank you, we really do appreciate it. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to rate and review us on your podcast platform to help spread the word. Thanks to all of our guests on this episode. Our producer is Michael Humphreys, our editor is Ben Jones, and we'll leave you now with remarks from Sir David Attenborough as he addressed the World Economic Forum in Davos in January 2019.
people can truly understand what is at stake, I believe that they will give permission to business and governments to get on with the practical solutions. And as a species, we are expert problem solvers. But we haven't yet applied ourselves to this problem with the focus that it requires. We can create a world with clean air and water, unlimited energy, and fish stocks that will sustain us well into the future. But to do that, we need a plan. Over the next two years, there will be United Nations decisions on climate change, sustainable development, and a new deal for nature. Together, these will form our species' plan for a route through the Anthropocene. What we do now and in the next few years will profoundly affect the next few thousand years.